Hello and welcome back to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm a women's healthcare specialist and the host of Cocoa Pods podcast, a maternal morbidity and mortality reduction academy, basically means this is where we talk about all the issues relating to women in and around pregnancy to help them live healthier lives. In this month of July, we have been talking to Professor Sue, the Chief Medical Director of the Sickle Cell Association of America. And we're going to learn about some of the things we can do to prevent sickle cell disease. Professor Sue, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Happy to be here. There's a young woman out there, a young couple thinking, how can we really not have a child with sickle cell disease? How can sickle cell disease be prevented in our offspring? The preventive aspects, which are very important. And now as there are more and more, there's more and more progress in sickle cell, There's medicines to prevent you from having to only wait for stuff to happen. Uh, So you can have medicines to prevent or reduce the frequency of problems. So there's hydroxyria medicine and there's other medicines. I would suspect that these medications will not be available in every country of the world. And when they are available, Are they used to treat specific organs affected by sickle cell disease, or are they being used to treat the disease as a whole in the individual? Depending on which country you're on, they may have various availability, but there are different medicines available. There's also medicines to help the kidneys. There's medicines to help the heart, medicines to help the lungs. And those also have different uh, availability in different places, but they are not new medicines. These are fairly old, established, proven medicines, not experimental things. But wait, there's even more. So that now as more progress is coming along, there is cures for sickle cell with bone marrow transplant and with gene therapy. Wait a minute, bone marrow transplant? That sounds high tech. Is this available in low-resource countries? Bone marrow transplant is happening in Nigeria. I know that. Not tons of cases, but it is available, including in Lagos and I think in Benin and maybe one other place, Um, as well as elsewhere in Africa. Uh, Gene therapy is starting up also in some parts of the African continent. I think Tanzania or Kenya might have the first cases. Uh, And then gene therapy in the United States is right now under review for possible approval as a, it's no longer, may no longer be experimental. It may be actually approved by Food and Drug Administration as a biologically licensed uh, agent. So gene therapy is a technique that changes a person's genes to treat or cure disease. In sickle cell disease, this treatment also silences the production 
of the abnormal adult hemoglobin, the one that sickles. Sickle cell gene therapy involves collecting blood stem cells. Now, blood stem cells are those cells that live mostly in the bone marrow and divide to make new blood cells. So collecting these cells from the patient and treating them in a special laboratory produces gene-modified cells that are then given back to the patient via an intravenous infusion. So basically, gene therapy does three things. It replaces a disease-causing gene with a healthy copy of the gene. It deactivates a disease-causing gene that is not functioning properly, or it introduces a new or modified gene into the body to help treat a disease. So these kinds of things make it worthwhile for people with sickle cell disease to stay plugged in with regular checkups, with coming for finding out what's new, with coming to figure out which adaptations they need to make for school or for work so that they can live with sickle cell disease as well as possible, maximize their potential, and not miss out on the progress that's been happening. And for a, a woman who's thinking about having children, she definitely needs to know about genetics, needs to think about what the dad's genetics would be, needs to know that with her own genetics, she has this chance or that chance of having children with sickle cell disease. Uh, she probably needs to also learn about that besides sickle cell SS, there's other kinds of sickle cell also. So depending on what traits dad has, if dad has hemoglobin C or a beta thalassemia, those could also combine with mom's sickle gene to make a baby who has sickle cell disease. So what does it mean if you have beta thalassemia? Beta thalassemia is a blood disorder that reduces the production of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the iron-containing protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen to cells throughout the body. In people with beta thalassemia, low levels of hemoglobin reduce oxygen levels in the body. So I just described very quickly <laughs> whole curriculum for these adolescents. And those are some of the things that we try to do. It's hard to make it all stick, I have to say. Um, but I think with some repetition and with emphasis and then hopefully with just general knowledge uh, over many years, we could get a lot of that in so that at least the adolescent is making choices with some information in their head uh, rather than making choices with no information at all. Well, thank you so much. You know, um, uh, Dr. Seuss, you have published more than 70 authoritative papers on sickle cell disease. And as you just demonstrated, you participate at a community level at the sickle cell disease community health fairs and sickle cell community groups because of your appreciation of the multiple concerns of people living with sickle cell disease. And this appreciation has deepened. And I just want to ask you, what does it mean for a person to have sickle cell disease in 21st century America contrasted to someone living in a low resource community 
such as even Forsyth, Georgia, where we are recording from, or Lagos, Nigeria. What does this disease do to affected persons based on their communities? Yeah, well, I think first of all, it's a bad disease, no matter what, no matter where you are. Um, but having resources of different levels certainly adds to the, the difficulty and the, the social justice issues. Um, I think that what we find is that the number of doctors and the number of places who know what they're doing with sickle cell is still very unevenly distributed. And so tends in the United States, it would tend to be at big medical centers, medical schools, basically. And then would also tend to be more for pediatric than for adult. Um, because sickle cell disease used to be about 30, 40 years ago, used to be a condition where most children died, uh, never reached adulthood. So it could be sort of built into the education system as a pediatric condition. And adult medical education uh, did not have much about it. So that cuts across multiple different specialties, multiple different continents, uh, that the adult sickle cell care is more sparse than the pediatric sickle cell care. Um, but that gets accentuated if you just have not enough doctors, not enough medical centers, no health insurance. Uh, and so in a low resource community, then that all gets magnified and aggravated. Low resources is a matter of social problems, social policies will eventually solve that. But right now, it's just really hard. But even in Nigeria, I know that there are different levels of access to care. And so what somebody can get to in Lagos may not be the same as in rural Kaduna state or some other state. Uh, so we have been trying to figure out ways, we meaning the general sickle cell community, of how to bring at least the education to as many different places as possible and to try to use new communication methods uh, besides having like different pieces of paper, printed materials that could just get rumpled up or wet or something, or just costs money to print. Maybe having some of these sorts of visual aids. Also just sending things electronically so you don't have to store the paper. Most people are getting some sort of connection these days. I see, I made three trips to Nigeria, all pre-COVID, and everybody had two cell phones going at the same time, busy doing business. It was great. Um, and I think it was, sometimes it was because they had two different networks in case one network was out, they could use the other one. But I think one may be personal and one may be for family or whatever. Uh, but sending information by WhatsApp is something that we're exploring as a way to spread education. Um, sending things by uh, downloadable types of methods, making skits and videos. Uh, the British, the, the UK Sickle Cell Society several years ago made a three-part soap opera drama about sickle cell disease called The Family Legacy. The Family Legacy. If you it's freely available on YouTube. It actually features people of Nigerian ancestry in London working out issues of sickle cell disease uh, 
in three generations. It's very nicely done as a drama. Um, so I think having information is one of the things that we can try to do. The other is that there are more resources now for prevention that we can try to adapt and blend in. So in the medical system in many, many um, low resource countries, lots got built in for maternal child health for just like diarrhea conditions or malaria conditions. Here's a, uh, here's a model of a mosquito. That's a giant mutant one. Yes. <laughs> so malaria, gigantic problem for lots and lots of people, lots and lots of children die of malaria, but those with sickle cell disease are actually at worse risk of dying. So all over the world, about 300,000 children are born with sickle cell disease every year. More than three quarters of these children are born in sub-Saharan Africa, where if nothing is done, a lot of the children don't make it. Sickle cell trait, that is hemoglobin AS, is known to protect against having malaria, maybe because the malaria parasites cannot thrive in red blood cells containing hemoglobin S, or maybe because the infected red blood cells are prematurely and quickly removed during an immune response. Nonetheless, malaria is a major risk factor for death among children with sickle cell disease who are born in malaria endemic areas. And so you think if children with one hemoglobin gene are strongly protected against malaria, it seems logical that having two S genes in sickle cell disease might be associated with even greater protection. But the deal is patients that have sickle cell disease can develop severe malaria, even with very low parasite levels. Women with sickle cell disease, especially if they're pregnant, would also have greater risks if they catch malaria. But you know that there's lots of people who already realize that malaria is a problem, and there's a big infrastructure to try to spread the word about bed nets and getting anti-malarial medicines. So building on sickle cell messages onto this existing structure of how we spread messages, how to reach different people, small village, uh, neighborhood in the big city, these would be all ways that we try to build onto the existing infrastructure. Likewise, HIV, HIV AIDS has had a couple decades now of big attention to, we got to reach everybody with the messages. We got to see, have you, 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 and you all understand what you can do, get treatment if you're infected, do preventive medicine, screen the baby, test the baby, follow up the baby. So those very same things of test the baby, follow up the baby, hey, works for sickle cell too. So if we can use some of the same personnel who've actually been quite helpful in fighting HIV and reducing the rates of AIDS, uh, use some of those same personnel to work on sickle cell disease, that's kind of a smarter solution than trying to build a whole new structure like the sickle cell branch. <laughs> so instead of having the sickle cell branch of the health ministry, it could probably just be, here's the health ministry and we're gonna have sickle cell added in among the different tasks. 
Thank you so much. Um, hmm. You know, uh, Professor Sue, you have, for more than 23 years, you have experience in leadership of some of the largest pediatric sickle cell programs in the country. You became vice chief medical officer of Sickle Cell Disease Association of America in October 2016. And currently, as of 2023, you are the chief medical officer of Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. You have been involved in the American Society of Hematology initiatives and nationally in legislative advocacy. So I ask the question, what is the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America trying to achieve? And I know you might have alluded to some of the things you're doing. And how are women of childbearing age benefiting from this program? Yeah, thank you. So Sickle Cell Disease Association of America is trying to raise awareness for sickle cell disease and sickle trait, as well as try to bring about a universal cure for sickle cell disease. And the way that we've been trying to do that uh, has actually evolved over time so that it used to be that there was this dream that was yet unrealized of a universal cure. It's actually knocking on the door right now, this universal cure with gene therapy and how to uh, spread the word about it, how to apply it equitably, how to get access to it, how to pay for it, how to understand also the risks and benefits and who is eligible. Uh, these are all things that we're interested in doing. At the same time, still having this goal of trying to raise awareness and the ways, the, the methods to raise awareness, we're trying to broaden from just, like I said, pieces of paper uh, or physical meetings to many, many virtual kinds of methods and trying to adjust and learn the new new ways, new technologies, including things like podcasts. Uh, I had never done a podcast before the pandemic. Now, <laughs> this is about my fourth or fifth one. Um, so trying to spread in all these directions. At the same time, I have to admit, Sickle Cell Disease Association America has not grown in size proportional to the tasks at hand. And so it's tremendously stretched and looking for friends and allies uh, such as this, uh, this podcast to leverage all the different people who are interested in spreading the word and trying to get that out. Um, but uh, the other answer is that I function on about four and a half hours of sleep a night. Okay, Dr. Sue, you are a professor at University of Illinois in Chicago. You are a pediatric hematologist dedicated to finding more cures for sickle cell disease and improving treatment and education until cures can be found. And like you said, it's knocking on the door. You strive for close partnership with people. Thank you for accepting the invitation to this podcast and also for partnerships with adult hematology on comprehensive care across the lifespan. Talking about the lifespan and going back to the very beginning, 
how are fetal cells, that is cells of the unborn child, helping with the advancement in treatment of sickle cell disease in this day and age? Ah, actually, they're not. So right now, there's no sickle cell research going on with uh, cells from the unborn child. There's very, 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 very basic research kind of far away from sickle cell that's helping to understand how uh, different things are done in terms of how the different properties, how DNA folds and fixes itself and things like that. But at the moment, the research in sickle cell disease does not particularly depend on embryonic cells. So it's not having aborted babies used for research in the field of sickle cell disease. Um, There are other areas of science that are related and that some of the ideas cross over. Uh, So I can't say that there's nothing, but what comes to mind right now is not directly from fetal cells. Oh, there is one other thing. There is a technique called in vitro fertilization pre-implantation genetic diagnosis that you may have already talked about on your show, perhaps? A little bit, when we had a reproductive endocrinologist on the show. Okay. So the idea for that pre-implantation genetic diagnosis would be that the uh, egg and sperm are put together in the lab. Uh, The mom and dad give their egg and sperm outside the body in the lab. They're put together and some embryos are formed, and then several of them are growing up. And then when they get to the cell stage of something like 16 cells, I think, one cell is plucked from that embryo to be tested for its genetics. And when the genetic test is related to sickle cell, it would be to find out which of these embryos has sickle cell SS, which have sickle trait, which have no sickle at all, And depending on the situation, you pick which embryo goes into the mom's womb to be allowed to grow up. Or sometimes they take two embryos and they put two into the mom. Um, So that would be doing something with the fetal cells uh, for testing, basically. And that is quite relevant for the, the reproductive health types of themes that you have. The other embryos that were not chosen would go into a freezer. So we have been talking to Professor Louis L. Sue, MD, PhD, professor at University of Illinois at Chicago. And for those wondering about your early career, um, I'm going to say something and let you uh, talk on that. You earned your MD and PhD biophysics at the University of Rochester. You did your pediatric residency at Yale New Haven and pediatric hematology oncology fellowship at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Your clinical and translational research in sickle cell disease include the landmark STOP, STOP study of transfusion to reduce stroke risk bone marrow transplantation for children with severe sickle cell disease, and clinical research on pain management candidate agents. Like I said before, you have more than 23 years of experience in leadership, 
You have over 70 peer-reviewed publications. You've co-authored over three books and five websites devoted to patient education. You are a co-PI of a site in the National Institute of Health Sickle Cell Disease Implementation Consortium with Dr. Gordek. You are gaining experience with patient reported outcomes through projects funded by Chicago Capricorn Network and Transition Care Evidence 2 Action Network. On CocoaPods podcast, we especially consult with healthcare professionals and experts in the field like you, experts in the field of sickle cell disease to ensure the accuracy of the information provided on our podcast. So also as a researcher, patient advocate, and a person with personal experience in managing individuals with sickle cell in different contexts, we sought you out to provide insights and share your expertise on this topic. So first of all, thank you again, Professor Sue, for coming to this podcast. And then I want to ask, we have patients and students that want to know, what does a pediatric hematology oncology doctor do? And I am looking at a Dr. Sue's cap in your bookshelf behind you. Can you tell us some about these things? Okay. So uh, so my name is Dr. Sue. And so I just, because I'm pediatric, I think like a child and uh, I enjoy Dr. Sue's books. So that is a cat in the hat, red and white type of hat. Um, I could go reach for it and grab it and put it on. <laughs> Thank you. There we go. Um, so this, I, I sometimes will do this for like health fairs or children's parties or something like that, just to just to be silly and have fun. Um, wave and or tip my hat to people. In our upcoming episode, Professor Sue tells us some more about his career and some of the fun things he's done.